and it's so cool to see what God is doing, you guys. So today, we start the book of Ephesians, and so if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1, and I would say that this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I don't know if that's cool to say or not, but um, it's just such an awesome book. You know, Ephesians uh, is well known for, you know, it's teaching on how to be a husband and how to be a wife and even how to be a parent, how to be a child, how to be a, a boss or employer or employee. I mean, it, you know, you talk about fighting the, the fight in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, how to walk, and so many things that God is going to ask us to do. But before we get to chapter 4 um, and all that stuff about what we're supposed to do, the first three chapters, uh, they just pound us over and over and over and over again of what God has done. Because unless you really, unless you don't, you know, if you don't realize how rich you are as a Christian, then you're going to be living uh, underneath the privilege that you have as being a child of God. And so that's why I love this book, because the first three chapters, he's just talking about how wealthy you are. And then once you find out, hey, God lives in me, God loves me. You know, you, when you find out things about the Lord like that, then you begin to live the supernatural life. I mean, you can walk on water. Think about that. Did you guys know you can walk on water? And you're like, what do you mean walk on water, man? I go swimming. I can't walk on water. What are you talking about? Well, walking on water is when the devil's underneath your feet. Walking on water is when you're walking over the storms of life, where they don't got you sinking down. You know, that's the life God wants us to live. It's, the Ephesians is the book of victorious Christian living. But you have to know how rich you are. You know, if you had all the wealth in all the world, and you multiplied that by a million, and then by a billion, and then you multiplied it by infinity, and then eternity, you still would not have skimmed the surface of the exhaustive resources and riches that you have in Christ. You know, we don't realize that, and I think that's why so many times we, the church, are unfortunately struggling, and that's why families are struggling, that's why marriages are struggling, that's why the world is the way it is, because the church is not being the church. You know, you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. You are rich. We have to make sure we understand this. You know, I mean, you may have heard of the story of, of Hetty Green, she was known as America's greatest miser, yet she was an individual who, when she died in 1916, left an estate valued at over $100 million. Think about that. How many of you guys, anyone have $100 million? Can I be your friend? You know, imagine that. Back in 1916, this lady was rich, but she didn't live like it. She ate oat, cold oatmeal because it cost too much to heat it, she said. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic that his case became incurable. Uh, she was wealthy, but she lived like a pauper. You know, she was maybe eccentric, or a little bit crazy, but in the end, she was foolish because she even hastened her own death by bringing an, an attack on while arguing about the value of drinking skimmed milk. And so, you know, you look at her life and you're like, man, what a, what a trip that she would live that way. I mean, if I had a million dollars, I'm sorry, I'd probably have, you know, a good running car and I'd be eating out some, some nice places, a little filet mignon every once in a while, you know, and, you know, you take your kid to the hospital. I mean, you warm up your oatmeal. I mean, but, but the, the, the illustration is that a lot of times Christians do the same thing. We have limitless spiritual wealth at our disposal, and yet many times we live like paupers. And so this book of Ephesians begins with a revelation of how rich we are um, because that riches is what we're going to draw from as we're living this life. And so a great book. Uh, I pray, you guys, I mean, it's so cool to see you here today, but let's, let's plant this book in our hearts. Let's plant this truth in our heart. You read it when you, when you go home. You study it. You, know, you, you come, hopefully, on the next few Sunday mornings with that excitement. It'll probably take us a, a couple of months to go through it. So that, um, like Spurgeon said, if I had one book, C.H. Spurgeon, this amazing preacher, one book that I had to, to, to choose, if I was to choose one book, 
it would be the book of Ephesians to plan in my heart. That's how huge this book is. So come and let it sink in. Today we're going to look at seven benefits in being a Christian, although there are many more, but we get to see seven of them today. Number one, we are blessed by God the Father. Number two, we are chosen by God the Father. Number three, we are adopted by God the Father. And then number four, we are accepted by God the Father. And so that first portion is focusing more on what the Father has done. And then it transitions to the second portion of what the Son has done. Uh, it says right here, number, number five, we are redeemed by God the Son. And then number six, we are heirs, joint heirs with God the Son. And then number seven, we are, and then it gets into the Holy Spirit, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so um, amazing things we get to soak in today. I'll be honest with you guys, each one of these stands alone. Each one of these, if we wanted to, we could do a sermon on them. And that's why I'm encouraging you, uh, dive in. As you're at home, study these things. It'll be life-changing. It really will. But we begin with the greeting in, in verse 1. It's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. You know, some of you guys know uh, this guy Paul was formerly known as Saul. He was the man who persecuted the church with a passion. You know, one day he was on his way to Damascus to do just that, to persecute Christian men, women, and children, throw them into prison, uh, arrest them, vote for their death. He was on his way to do that damage. But Jesus Christ appeared to him uh, brighter than the sun, high in the sky that day, and the Lord saved him, Saul, that sinner on that road to Damascus. Christ then called and commissioned him to preach the gospel, and uh, hence we see his identification here as an apostle. And so you can read that in Acts chapter 8 and 9. And it's interesting, even, you know, what a, a perfect man to write this book, because we see it right away how in Saul, it's all about God. You know, he wasn't seeking the Lord, man. He was actually seeking to persecute the body of Christ. But the Lord saved him. The Lord appeared to him. The Lord arrested him. And the Lord commissioned him to be an apostle. Paul is a tall trophy of God's grace. He's a typology of a Christian who prior to his conversion was a terrible sinner, deserved nothing but death, but instead he was saved and not just saved, he was sent by the will of God. And just in case, you know, you're here today and you're not, you know, sure, like what would happen to you if you died today? You know, do you know that you know the Lord? You know, if you're here today and maybe you're thinking, man, I don't even belong in church because my life is all messed up and I've done a million things that are wrong. Listen, there's no sin that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. And there is no sinner, whoever that person might be, that God himself is not willing to save. You know, that might be you here today. And, you know, right away, you may not know a lot about this guy, Paul, but I'm telling you, man, he was the worst. He was the worst. But what God did was God rolled up his sleeves and he reached down to the slimiest place and he grabbed the worst sinner of all. And he said, listen, if I can save him, then I can save you, whoever you are. You know, this is Paul uh, the apostle. And so the word apostle, it, it means one who is sent as an authorized agent, a special messenger of God. Uh, this is the brother that's writing the letter. It says right here in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And so he's writing the letter to the saints. And that just means someone who's saved. You know, I'm a, a wretched man. I probably messed up more than you guys. But I know I'm saved because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, I'm a saint. If you want to call me Saint Manny, you can. <laughs> but don't pray to me, because you're not supposed to do that, right? You're saved, you're a saint. That's the way it works. The Greek word, it just means to be set apart. It's the word found 97 times in the New Testament, nine times in the book of Ephesians. And we are consecrated to God, and, and we're sacred, and we're special. And so in that sense, we're saints. Now, before I became a Christian, I used to go to Catholic church, and they have 
the, the whole thing, uh, it's kind of weird the way that it's set up. It's tragic, actually, the way they have this misconception that being a saint is like this whole drawn-out process. And, and you know, they, they say that after a person dies, in order to be considered to be a saint, you have to wait at least five years to make sure there's no emotional attachments. And then they scrutinize the life. And, you know, if they're able to pass the first test, they can be categorized, number one, as a servant of God. And then after that, they earn another title through investigation. And if this candidate has been holy enough with many works and significant signs, then they reach the example of being a heroic virtue, and then they reach the title of being venerable. After that, and according to their standards, a person can be prayed to, you can pray to them, which is completely unbiblical. There's nowhere in the Bible where someone prays to another person other than God. But that's where they you know, reach the state of being venerable, and then it continues with beatification, and then they call them blessed, and then the final stage is canonization. Uh, one of their saints recently who was canonized, St. Bede, it took him a thousand years to make that individual a saint. But that's not the way it works. The moment, the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. That's what the Bible says. Saved, set apart, consecrated to God. No, you're here and when we see in Ephesus, it didn't take a thousand years. It doesn't say that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the only qualification for being a saint is found here in the second address, and that is the location not just in Ephesus, but the believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's what it says right there. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's going to be one of the keys that Paul mentions throughout the epistle. It's uh, something that he tells us uh, 27 times how we're in Christ in this letter and nine times in our text today. And the simple truth is, uh, once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, wherever you are, if you are a believer, you're not in El Monte, you're in Christ. That's where you are. That's your spiritual geography. You know, one of my favorite passages is Colossians 1, verse 13, where it says, He, Jesus, has delivered us, the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's what has happened. We are now as believers in Christ. And so he's writing, uh, Paul, this apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, some of the, the manuscripts, they don't have the words in Ephesus. And so there's a lot of Bible teachers who believe, well, it wasn't really intended uh, to go to Ephesus. It was more of a generic letter. But I believe uh, there's enough manuscript evidence to say that, yes, it was written to the Ephesians. But when you read Acts 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, it was from there that the word of the Lord just spread throughout all Asia because Ephesus was this huge city and great influence. And so, you know, Paul the Apostle, when you read Acts chapter 19, he spent three years in Ephesus. And so usually Paul didn't do that. Usually Paul would go to a city, he'd be there, you know, briefly, a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer. When he was in Corinth, he was there for 18 months, and so that's a little longer. But when he was in Ephesus, man, he was there for three years. And so the Lord did a great work. This church is an amazing church. When you read the book of Acts chapter 20, as he's going back to Jerusalem, you might remember that he wept there on the beach with the elders of Ephesus, and he just wept with them because he knew that he would no longer see their face. So when you put it all together, you're like, well, wait a minute, time out. If Paul had been in Ephesus that long, and he had all these you know, relationships with people that were so personal, why don't we see anything personal in the letter? And again, most, most, it's most likely because he wrote it to them, yes, but it would be a letter that would be for the whole church. As a matter of fact, uh, most teachers believe that the theme of Ephesians, the theme of Ephesians is bodybuilding. Any of you guys ever do that, bodybuilding? Some of you guys are all buff. You're like, yeah, I do. Well, this is what this is. It's, it's, it strengthens the church. It's for the church as a whole. 
when we get this letter in our hearts, God is going to make us strong. And so, you know, we see who, who he wrote it, who, who he wrote it to, and, and then we read his greeting there in verse 2, where he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and you might read that and you think, well, that's just him saying hi and, and bye. But no, I mean, in all reality, nothing random in the Bible. Grace and peace, they're there for a reason. It's been called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Because here's what happens. When you get a good grip on grace, then God will give you a perfect peace. And I'll be honest with you, man, that's something that I long for. You know, you know that peace that surpasses understanding, that peace where I feel comfortable in my own skin. You know, sometimes you go in a crowd and you feel awkward and you feel out of place or whatever. Maybe you have things going on in your life and it doesn't add up, it doesn't make any sense, and you have a lot of questions. Uh, maybe the enemy's coming in with confusion and perplexity and you've got all this stuff going on. And God says, no, 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 you shouldn't be living that way. When you get a good grip on grace, then God will shower you with his peace. You know, another way to look at it is when by grace we make peace with God, then we will then experience peace, this peace of God. And even though life gets crazy, I know a lot of you guys are going through tough times, and there are many questions you have. You, you realize, because I have been given this grace in Christ, this undeserved, unmerited, I can never be good enough to say, well, God, you, you, know, you owe me. It. No, he just lavishes it on you, his goodness, his love. You want to know something? All the things that you're going through, they're working together for good. God loves you. God is working. It's all in his timing. When you understand grace, then you will be flooded with peace whatever you're going through. If you don't have peace, let's start from there. If you don't have peace, then it's because you don't understand grace. That's God's reward at Christ's expense. My prayer is that as we study this book, that you will better understand that. You know, picture, if you would, like a massive hurricane raging over the ocean. And on the surface of the sea, the violent winds whip the water into giant waves and create scenes of havoc and chaos. And you got that scene recently, there was this crazy hurricane in Florida. You might know what I'm talking about. Yet, the thing is, if you were to go just, just 25 feet below the surface, you would see there the waters are clear, the waters are calm, the fish are chill, they're kicking it, living in peace and tranquility. Tranquility. And what we find is that when there is depth in your doctrine, when there is depth in Christ, there is peace no matter what the problem is. That's how it is, not just in the ocean, but that's how it is in Christ. When we get a healthy and biblical understanding of grace, it always leads to peace. And I pray, you know, I pray for you guys. I know you're going through it. And that's one of the things that, you know, not only in my life, but we want for your life. And Lord, no more of the craziness, no more of the awkwardness, no more of feeling uncomfortable, no more of the depression, no more of the anxiety, God. Please, God, give your people peace. Let them know their love. I pray they would know you still have a perfect plan their life. That's what grace gives. It gives us that peace. And so Paul here, after the greeting, he goes on to give us seven uh, benefits of being a Christian. Number one, we read in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so, um, a lot of you guys know this, some of you guys, maybe it's new to you, but the first three chapters are regarding your wealth. Uh, the last three chapters have to do more with your walk, chapter six, specifically your war. The first three chapters are more about doctrine, then the last three chapters are more about duty. 
first three chapters are like what we believe, and then the last three chapters are how we behave. Another way to see it is that God here teaches us what he's done before he even begins to start teaching us what we should do. Because here's the thing, you guys, you know, you won't be able to be that husband, that wife, the parent, the child, the, the worker, the, the disciple. You won't be able to do anything unless you first understand what God has done for us, and you probably won't even want to. You know, we should reach a point in our life where, in all honesty, this is kind of the way I've been waking up every morning. God, I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. You know, not that I'm being a Pharisee, not that I'm being legalistic, man, but I don't want to think bad thoughts. I don't want to get upset with my wife or my kids or, you know, someone who cuts me off on the freeway. I mean, Lord, I don't want to look at an image right here and then look again at something that I shouldn't, Lord. I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. We should have that heart because it grieves God when we do. I mean, now we're not going to, you know, be perfect but we should at least try because of what the Lord has done for us. That's why. And that's why it's so important. When you, when you look at this, well, before I get into the walk, I got to realize the wealth. And the first thing we see right here, it just blows my mind, you guys. Look again. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places, in Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Did you know that? I mean, that is, to me, it blows me away. You know, we discover that we have this wealth in Christ. Really, as Christians, it's not a question of whether or not my portion is large or small. It's a discovery of the fact that I've been given it all. God has given everything to me that pertain to that divine nature and godliness. Not that I'm God, but I am joint heirs, we're going to see later, with Jesus Christ. And everything has been given to me. And so this is life-changing. God loves us that much. We read in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you realize that? You know, praise God, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, I know I know some of you guys here are like, wait a minute, time out, Manny. My life is not like that. Now, some of you guys are more interested, preoccupied with the blessings in the earthly places rather than the heavenly places. And you want the clothes, and you want the car, and you want the health, and you want the wealth, and you want the house, and you want the spouse. And you go on and you talk about all the earthly blessings. And I'm not saying God can't give you those things, but... He's more interested in the heavenly blessings. The blessings in the heavenly places, they have to do with what it takes for me to get to heaven. Blessing in the heavenly places have to do with what it takes for me to stay on the road that leads to heaven. Blessings in the heavenly places have to do with how God can use my life to help others go to heaven. And they're way more important than the earthly blessings. You know, I was reading about a distraught a wife who was seeking out Christian counselor for her marriage. And she told the sad story of how her marriage was dissolving. And she told the man, well, we have so much. She kept saying, look at this diamond ring on my finger. It's worth thousands of dollars. And we have an expensive mansion in an exclusive area. We've been married for this long. We have three cars and even a cabin in the mountains where we have everything money can buy. And the counselor said, well, it's good to have the things money can buy, but you can't lose the things that money can't buy. What good is an expensive house if you don't have a home? What good is an expensive wedding ring if you don't have love? See, when you're a Christian, God gives us everything, every 
spiritual blessing is yours now. The thing is, we have to walk in that. We have to draw from that account. We have to realize that. Did you know that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing? And then secondly, we read in verse 4 that that we are chosen. Look what it says. It says, just as he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. One translation says, long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. I mean, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen by God. I remember when I was a kid, and it still happens nowadays every once in a while. Do you guys remember when you would play sports maybe or you had a game and you know they would pick teams? Do you guys remember? Oh, yeah, you know, you're playing baseball. and I'll have Anthony, I'll have Stephen, and you, all these guys, and you're sitting there just waiting for someone to choose you. And then, you know, and then it's all done, and there's just like a, a, you know, weird because there's an odd number, and they look at me and they say, hey, you can be the umpire. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's cold, man. <laughs> You didn't get chosen, you know, and that might be, you know, you might think, well, that's me. That's my life. I feel like the one who is always looked over, neglected, not chosen. And yet the truth is Paul reveals to us, you, it wasn't that captain or that person or that baseball team or that kickball team. I remember playing kickball. No, it's God chose you if you're saved. Think about that. Chosen by God. Now, some people like to say, well, he only chose me because I chose him. No, don't water it down. As a matter of fact, it's more the other way around, that we only chose him because he chose us. You know how it is in a love relationship. Usually there's one that busts the move first, right? (laughs) For us, it's God. He said, "I I chose you. And this is the truth that Paul has in front of us, chosen, just as he chose us in him before the the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You were chosen. Think about that. One day there'll be no blemishes, no no, uh, blame whatsoever. We read something similar in Ephesians 5.27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and, and without blemish. That's what Jesus has done for us. You know, I'm getting a little older now. I'm already 30 years old and getting these wrinkles, man. And I'm like, hey, people are saying, hey, you should put this cream on, you know, and it'll help you with the crow's feet. And they have these little rollers now. You guys know that? It's a trip. I'm like, man. But I see it really does work because you look at some person who's using that stuff and I'm like, man. You know, that's amazing how your skin doesn't have any of that. I just tell him, you know what? I don't got the money for that. I'm just going to wait until I get to heaven. Because <laughs> the Lord says that he's going to present me to himself without wrinkle, without blemish, blameless. I've been chosen for that. This is what we see in the scriptures. You know, not just chosen to be on his kickball team, but notice what we read in, in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Or as one translation says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. You know, what we see right here is that you know God adopted us into his family, it says, um, before time began, before we had the opportunity to earn it or, or even, you know, maintain it, you know, God from the beginning chose you as a part of his church, foreordained to be in his family, predestined to be adopted, you know, and that, and that really needs to sink in. Now, some of you guys here, you know what I'm talking about. I think I shared with you before, like uh, this one lady had a few kids running around and someone came up to her and said, hey, 
you beautiful kids, if you had the chance, would you have as many kids again? And she said, yes, but not the same ones. Now, I remember I told you that, right? Because we can't choose the ones that, you know, we give birth to, although I know you guys love them, don't get me wrong. But that when you adopt someone, I mean, you literally go and you find and you choose who will be your kid like that. And this is what God has done. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Let that sink in. It's going to take time, but everything. And, and he has chosen us, and he has adopted us into his family. You know, I, I've always loved the word predestined because it has the word destiny in it. And I've always loved the concept of destiny because I always think, you know, what's my, my destiny? And, and here we have it in God's word. It's not only to be in his family, but, but to be like him. The Bible says in Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so one of the reasons why Paul uses the illustration of adoption is because of William Barclay, he said this, in, in Roman law, when the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. And the person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate child in their new family and completely lost all rights in the old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all his debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. And that's what happens when you're adopted, you're given the right uh, as a child with legal standing. And so immediately you can draw off all those resources. Now, the book of Ephesians has been compared to an Old Testament book. Uh, the two are parallel, and that is the book of Joshua. And if you read the book of Joshua, what you find is God has said, hey, I've set before you the whole land, and I want you to go in, and I want you to step into the land, and I want you to know that I've given it to you. You don't even really have to fight for it. Just step into wherever you step. God said, I'll give to you. And that's kind of how it is for, for us as, as Christians. You know, the, the land has been given to us, a life of victorious Christian living. You can be that man of God. You can be that woman of God. We're not interested in you being a Pharisee or some legalistic Christian. We don't want any of that. But don't you want to be like Jesus? Still you, funny you, funky you a little bit, creative, individual, none like you, but with the heart of Christ. You see, that's the work that God wants to do. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. And it says what pleasure he took in planning this. Every spiritual blessing, blessed, chosen, adopted. And then the one that I probably like the most, to be honest, is the next one. And look what it says in verse 6. To the, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. You see how rich you are? You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are chosen by God. You are adopted by God. And, and, and you know, if you can visualize the whole thing, okay, so um, you're chosen, you're adopted, then you kind of come into the house, and then what happens? Then what happens? Then you're accepted. You're accepted. You know, and that's a big word, to be accepted. A lot of times people won't accept you for whatever the reason is, you know? You just can't change it. You can't get around it. But we have been accepted by God. You know, I was reading one article. It said acceptance is a key principle for people of all cultures in all of life, but it's elusive. It's found through one social status. If it isn't, it isn't found through one social status or wealth or accomplishments, 
because there are many successful, wealthy, famous people who struggle with acceptance. No matter how hard someone tries, it doesn't guarantee that you'll be accepted by someone else. And so you live your life and they never accept you. And you want to know what's worse than that is a lot of times you live your life and it's almost like you can't even accept yourself. Yourself. And that's hard. But I think the only way through that, the only way to overcome that, is this has to sink in. You. You have been accepted by God. By God. Accepted in the Beloved. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Father accepts His Son? Do you think the Father loves Jesus? Oh, yeah. You guys love your, your kids, don't you? You slap them upside the head every once in a while, but you still love them, right? Well, yeah, imagine the, the love the Father has for the Son, this perfect Son who did everything, died on the cross, completed His mission. They've had this relationship for eternity. Let me tell you something. The Father loves the Son, and you are in the Son. And just as the Father loves the Son, He loves you. If you're struggling with your self-identity, if you're struggling with who you are, you know, I really believe with all my heart that this is one of the things that God will use, one of the truths that, that God has used. You just kind of like, you just have to open up and accept the fact that you are accepted by God. That's all that matters. This is such an important truth. You know, we are accepted. Charles Spurgeon said, As God is so boundlessly pleased with Jesus that in him he is altogether pleased with us. You know, the, the, the next thing we see after we look at what the Father has blessed us with is we then transition into the Son. And in, in verse 7 through 10, uh, most teachers make a distinction at this point. Remember I've always told you guys um, that we, are, we were saved by the Father uh, as we were chosen before time began. We were saved by the Son when He died for us on Calvary. And we were saved by the Spirit, the, the moment we were born again. And that's how it is. And so you now transition into what Jesus has done. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. You know, God wants us to know that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we've been chosen, adopted, accepted, and he wants us to know that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ and he has forgiven us of our sins. Now, in the Greek language, the, read, the word redeemed here, it's not just like a CRV thing, it's, it's huge. It basically means that you were a slave in the slave market up for sale, you were there in prison in bondage on a slippery slope without hope, headed for hell. You were there and God redeemed you. God purchased you from your slavery. This is what this word speaks of. Now, again, Paul writing in this culture, the Roman culture had 60 million slaves. And so slaves were bought like furniture. They were, you know, all over the place, man. And so, but every once in a while, you'd find somebody with a heart, somebody with compassion, and they would buy a slave, and they would set them free. And that is what Christ has done for us. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin. But he bought us with his blood, and he set us free. This is redemption. This is what Christ has done for us. And in that you know, freedom is not the freedom to sin. It's the freedom not to sin. It's the beautiful truth that we've been forgiven of our sins. You know, I was thinking about that. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. 
Now, why the blood of Jesus? And of course, we know it's because he died in our place. But also, there's an emphasis on that because when I think of the blood of Jesus, I just think to myself, there is nothing that, no sin, no darkness, no, 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 no uh, mistake or mishap that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. And that's what we see in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 19. Come now and let us reason. Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This is, even though they're like crimson, you will be like wool. See, this is what God has done for us. The sacrifice, the suffering, the extent of his love. You know, I think of 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. That's how much he loves you. And the Bible says in Romans 5 verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You know, I don't know if you feel like this. You know, sometimes our feelings are fickle, but the truth is when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he sees no sin. You're perfect, positionally speaking. You know, I, I was thinking about that whole thing and I was just like, wow, Lord, you know, it's kind of like, you know, every once in a while, I don't know if you guys, you know, times are financially tight right now. And I don't, maybe some of you guys are probably doing pretty good, but, you know, we're in our mind, we're probably not doing that good, okay? Some of you guys are, are probably struggling, right? You're like, man, I got to buy something and it cost me $50 or whatever, you know, and uh, it's, it's hurting you or whatever. You might even have to, I don't know, uh, charge something because maybe your plumbing got messed up or whatever, you know, and you're like, wow. $300 and, you know, it's down there. But then, you know, somehow you open up your bank account and you realize, man, there's, uh, you know, $3 billion in there. You know, that would be a dream come true. And the Lord is saying, that's how it is with your sin. Yeah, you messed up and whatever it is, and I don't know what it is that, you know, you're struggling with or whatever it is that you did. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not trying to make light of it because like I said earlier, we should try not to sin, but you got to understand that there's this, where sin abounded, Romans 5.20 said, grace abounded much more. And so not that we abuse it, but we use it. Thank you, Lord, that I am forgiven because I've turned from my sin and I trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. You know, he, he, he redeemed us. How did we, we get it? And then how, how did it happen? It's revealed to us in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And this is how it happened. You know, the Bible talks about how in, when Paul went to Philippi and he shared the gospel with Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. And she understood the things that were spoken by Paul. You know, if you understand the gospel, that's a miracle. The natural man does not understand the things of God. But you understand, huh, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus died on a cross for you. They buried him, rose again. And if you place your faith in Christ, you're saved. That's a revelation. That's a supernatural revelation. We could not have come to that place on our own. And so we read in verse 10 that the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. I'm basically saying that when it's all said and done, you know, we're all going to be there as Christians in heaven together. In the Greek language, it says it's all going to add up to where it accomplishes God's perfect plan. In the fullness of times, God is going to be glorified and it's going to be so amazing. And so we are redeemed by Christ. In verse 11 through 12, we are heirs with Christ. It says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so you guys know that Jesus inherits all things, right? 
for we are joint heirs with Christ. And so not only uh, are we heirs with Christ, we also are an inheritance of Christ. And it's so cool when you see it all come together. And right here, it says that we are predestined in this according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, again, we don't understand this, but in one sense, like you're like, well, why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? And it's not like any, meeny, miny, mo. It's not like that. It's not random. What we see right here, it says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that just as if you were choosing like a, a baseball team, somehow, some way, it's all part of his eternal purpose. And so I don't know exactly how that works. All I know is that in Christ, I am redeemed and I have this amazing inheritance because of the fact that we trusted Christ. Notice it says right there in verse 12 that we who first trusted in Christ should be the, to the praise of his glory. So, so when I look at you guys, because I know a few of you, I know some of you. Not, I don't know most of you, but I know a few of you. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I know him. He's pretty messed up. And, and, I, and I know her. Yeah, she's, you know, she's been through a lot, Lord. And you know what? When I see you, you, know, you want to know what happens? And I'm like, man, God, you are so awesome. You are so awesome. You saved him. You saved her. You're doing this work. You love this young man. The things, you're, God, you're so awesome. I don't look at that individual and say, oh, he's so awesome. Oh, she's so awesome. No, we don't. We don't. Because we know these things. And, and one of the things you'll see after he mentions the Father and after he mentions the Son and after he mentions the Spirit, all three times he says, to the praise of his glory. And that's what happens, you guys. That, that's how good God is. Now, God has chosen us. It doesn't mean that we are, are then free from our responsibility to choose him. Notice again, it says there in verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You've got to trust Christ. You can't just go to church and think you're saved. You can't just, well, yeah, you know, I'm, no, you have to trust in him. Now, this right here is interesting because he's talking about the Jews. Paul is a Jew, and he's saying we first trusted in Christ, but then he's writing to the Gentiles, and notice what he says next, in him you also trusted. Now he's talking to the Gentiles. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And it's interesting, verse 13, you might want to study that when you go home today, because right there, the whole process of salvation is given in that verse. I mean, you heard the word of truth, you heard the gospel, uh, you trusted in Christ, you believed on the Lord, and as a result of that, he says right there, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And, and basically, you know, if you're a Christian here today, how many of you guys are Christians? If you raise your hand, okay, you're a Christian. Do you sense the Holy Spirit inside of you? You do, huh? Because God, if God lives in you, if God lives in you, you know it, right? And that's God's engagement ring saying, hey, Let's, let's get married. That's God's deposit. That's saying, hey, I'll be back. Everything's going to be paid off and taken care of. That's God's pledge. That's God's earnest. That's God's guarantee that he is going to finish this heavenly work that he's begun within us. Why? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Amen? If you don't have that Holy Spirit inside of you, then you better get, it to, you better get him today, man. You have to give your life to him. In one sense, like David Gusick said, the deposit of the Holy Spirit is a little bit of heaven in believers' lives 
with a guarantee of much more to come. And I love that because I do feel the Holy Spirit inside of me and I know he lives in me. And I know that when I accepted Christ, that God came into my life. I know it. I know it. And so I know, just like we read right here, it's just a down payment, that one day, man, we'll be home in, in glory. Now, some in the, in the Greek, even today, they use the same Greek word for a wedding ring. I was thinking, in, in closing, I'll just tell you guys this quick story. Um, Russell Wilson, I think, is the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. Um, did you guys know Homeboy bought a ring for his fiancée? Uh, her name is Ciara for $2.5 million, a ring. He must really love her, man. <laughs> and some of you girls here today, you're like, hey, I'd like to get a ring like that. <laughs> but you have a better ring. Did you know that? Better than anything. Money can buy. You've been given the ring from Jesus Christ. He says, here, this is my seal, this is my earnest, this is my guarantee, this is my pledge. You're my love. You're my love. Let that encourage you. I don't want people to be miserable because I know that's what the devil wants. People are walking around and they're miserable. How can you be miserable? You're a Christian. You're a Christian. How can you be miserable? You want to know how? By living as a miser. You're so rich, but you're not living within the wealth that God has given to you. And so I pray as we begin and as we study the book of Ephesians, for all of us, you know, my life and myself included, that we would be able to live that victorious Christian life that God's called us to, for those of you who are Christians, that, that's the, the blessing. And if you're here today and you're not yet, you have not yet made that decision to follow Jesus, I pray that you would today. And so, Lord, I thank you for, for loving us. I, I thank you for just uh, the beautiful God that you are. And I know you love these people, Lord. Most of them, I believe, are, are your church. They're saved already and sealed. But Lord, maybe there's some that aren't. And so I pray that today, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that today would be that day of salvation.